0: Charles Spurgeon, George Whitfield, Hudson Taylor, John Rogers, the other Marian martyrs who died under the reign of Bloody Mary, these are all men that I would consider my own personal spiritual heroes. There are many did some pretty phenomenal things. Charles Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a man who was zealously committed to the preaching of the Word of God, to holding fast to sound doctrine. George Whitfield was a man who pioneered the way to literally going to the highways and the byways and preaching to the fields and preaching to the masses and, and drawing enormous crowds to come and hear a man open up the word of God and, and preach the gospel to them. Then you had a man like Hudson Taylor A man who went into China and took the gospel to parts that had never been reached before because he was willing to think outside the box and contextualize not necessarily the message, but the presentation of the message, contextualize his dress and his approach to be able to make inroads to places that needed the light of the gospel. And then, of course, you have the Marian martyrs, men who, under the reign of the Catholic queen, Bloody Mary, refused to recant their preaching and teaching, refused to deny the truths of the scriptures, refused to to escape the flames of of death as many of them were burnt at the stake because they were men of conviction, men of honor, men of dignity, men who held fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we learn of these men, and we read of these men, and we're encouraged by these men. But there's also something else that all of these men had in common, and that is that they were sinners, every single one of them. And none of them were Jesus. And the question that comes up a lot of times as we're studying a a, a subject, a topic, like the life of David, is should we really have admiration for other men? Can we really have spiritual heroes? I mean, so far in this series, we've held David up and said, David's been a great example of a godly leader to us time and time again, and and we're going to do that again this morning. But as we tackle this subject, and and before we continue on with the rest of the semester, because the rest of the semester really is going to be holding up David in in the positive light and the negative light and saying, what can we learn from his example? The question is, should we even have earthly spiritual heroes? And I think we can answer that question in two ways. Number one, where these men demonstrate this obedience and this faithfulness to God, are they worthy of our admiration and, and of our emulation? absolutely there. Absolutely there. We look at Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? And in the hall of faith, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith. And then he lists off all of these men and women who were great examples of the faith. And the reason he's doing that is to call our attention to them and to say, live in this way. Live in the way that Abraham lived, that Moses lived, that Deborah, that Barak, that Samson, that David lived. But then, when we come to see where these men demonstrated a rebellion against the Lord and sinful attitudes and behaviors, are they worthy of our admiration and emulation in that respect? Absolutely not, right? And I think that all of us are able to distinguish between the two. I think that all of us are able to look at David and where we see the positive elements about his life, not worship him, not, not create an idol out of King David, but to allow his pattern of behavior to encourage us to, to pursue similar obedience. It's like the Apostle Paul said, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's about as direct as you can get. Paul is telling the the people that he's writing to, imitate me. Why? Because I'm imitating Christ. And so as we get into our text together this morning, again, we're going to see from David, strong, godly, biblical leadership, very much worthy of our attention, our admiration, and most importantly, our emulation. But to get into the text, I want us to look back again to, to frame everything that we're going to look at this morning together in, from 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. 2 Samuel 3, verse 1 is that verse that summarizes what's going on, and it says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. See, the, the moment that we left off last week with the death of Abner, and now we get into chapter four, and, and the, the the action as we're reading is just flying at us fast and furious, but we have to remember that this war, this conflict, was two years long at least. That's as long as as Ish-bosheth's reign was in place there, and it may have started before that and, and continued a little ways after that, but here you have this long, drawn-out conflict that's taking place, and more than that, the summary goes on in verse one. It says that David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul, the house of Ishbosheth, grew weaker and weaker. So that's the current state of affairs, drawing close to the end of this two-year war, two-plus-year war. When we pick up in Second Samuel chapter four, verse one, and we read, "When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed." Here's a rather effeminate drawing of Abner being killed by Joab. And you'll remember that that, that was the, the end of chapter three. That Abner had left the presence of Ishbosheth because Ishbosheth had accused Abner of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, a, a move that would have usurped Ishbosheth's power and been a slap in the face to the king. And so Abner, of, of fenced, taking offense at that, uh, left and said, well, I'm going to go see David installed as king. And he goes to David, and David welcomes him in. And actually, it says in the text, makes a covenant with Abner. Well, Joab, who was still angry with Abner because of the death of Ashael, his brother who died in battle at the hands of Abner, Joab decided that he was going to take vengeance into his own hands against Abner, and he corners him in the gateway at the entrance to the city, and he ends up stabbing him in the stomach and and killing him. And so it finds out in, in chapter 4, verse 1, we find out that, that Ishbosheth is made aware of this. And it says that his courage failed him and he was dismayed. It's becoming a pattern in the book of 2 Samuel to find reactions that we don't expect. Because if, if Ishbosheth and Abner had this fallout, and if Abner left Ishbosheth and went to his rival, went to David, and said to Ishbosheth, I'm going to go see that David is installed as the true king over all of Israel, you would think that ish wouldn't be on great terms with Abner, that ish wouldn't harbor great feelings about Abner. And so when he finds out that Abner dies from a, a fleshly perspective, we might think that there was a little bit of, of rejoicing going on there. We might think that he was excited about that, that maybe he thought, well, hey, look, there's karma, to use a, a, a phrase from our vernacular today. But that's not the reaction we see. What we see from Ishbosheth is we see a man that's, uh, that's utterly paralyzed with terror and fear now. When it says that his courage failed him, it, it means that his hands grew weak. And it's that idea that he, he had no strength left in him to, to fight, he had no strength left in him to, to battle any longer. And then it says that he, he and all Israel with him, all those who were still loyal to Ishbosheth, were dismayed. That word dismayed in the Hebrew is a, a word that means horrified and terrified. But again, why? Why would the death of Abner produce that reaction in Ishbosheth and his followers? Well, it's possible that Ishbosheth maybe thought that Abner would return to him. Perhaps he thought, you know what? Abner's going to come to his senses one day and he'll come back to me because he'll see that, that David is the man who is the enemy of, of his former boss, his uncle, and, and then he'll come back to me and, and everything will be great. Maybe that's it. But even if that's not it, even if, if he had no hope of ever having Abner come back again, the fact that Abner was still alive would have been a little bit of a security blanket for Ishbosheth. Because deep down, Abner still had a loyalty to Saul and loyalty to the house of Saul. You'll understand and, and see and, and recognize that when he's accused of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, Abner could have just killed Ishbosheth at that point, couldn't he? It would have been an, an honor killing in the culture. Would it have been justified? Who knows? But at, at that point, he could have killed Ishbosheth. And who knows, maybe even taken the throne himself. So I, I think we still see a, a bit of a loyalty there. And, and certainly, Ishbosheth would have had reason to think that, that here's one of the last vestiges of my father's dynasty that's still here. And so there's a, a bit of comfort with that. But then all of a sudden, when Abner dies, Ishbosheth comes to the startling, startling realization, the, the terrifying realization that he has no one left. No one left. And as we look so far at Ishbosheth's reign, as, and again we go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and it says the house of David was growing stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker. When we look at, at the effects of Ishbosheth's leadership, we have to admit that Ishbosheth is not much of a king, is he? He's not a very strong leader. Certainly he's not a very good military leader. And so perhaps the people in Israel were wondering well, who else might be out there? And that's where we come to verse four in our text, something that at first seems kind of random, like it's stuck in a little bit out of place here in the rest of our story. But in verse four, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. We read that verse, and it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the context in the chapter. But here's what I think the the author is doing for us. I think what the author is doing for us is he's picturing the hopelessness of Israel. I think he's showing us that Israel was with without a, a good leader already installed, and the only other option was this son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. He was the only other one that could potentially lay claim to the throne if Ishbosheth was deposed, or if Ishbosheth was killed in battle, and Here you have Mephibosheth, who would have been seven, eight, nine years old at the time, and he was also lame. He was crippled in his feet. So he wasn't a king who could lead in battle. He wasn't a king who could command the respect of his people at the time. And so it's hopeless. It's a a position where you understand the dismay that overtakes Ishbosheth and all of Israel. But I think what the author is showing us, and what the narrator is showing us, what God is showing us, is that this is the outcome of Rebellion and disobedience. This is where things go when you're knowingly outside the prescriptive will of God. Ishbosheth had no right to the throne. He knew that. Abner knew that. In fact, the people of Israel knew that. And yet, Ishbosheth grabbed the reins himself. Abner grabbed the reins himself and said, You know what? This is maybe not what God's prescriptive will is, but I don't care about that. This is what I'm going to choose to do, anyways ungodly leadership on full display. And this morning, point number one for us is we need to avoid the perils of ungodly leadership. We need to avoid the perils of ungodly leadership. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, Paul writes there, Now these things happened to them, in the Old Testament he's referring to, as an example of, But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So there we have, again, Paul pointing out to us, look, these things were written down in the Old Testament. They actually happened to them. But for us, they're written down for our instruction so that what? We might learn from them so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. So yes, we can learn from the good And we'll see that a little bit later on in our passage, but we can also learn from the bad, which we certainly find here depicted in the the crumbling of this kingdom under the reign and leadership, ungodly leadership of Ishbosheth. How do we do this? How do we avoid the the perils of ungodly leadership? Just a couple thoughts. First, if you find that you are under ungodly leadership, get out, get out. And here's what I I don't mean by that. I, I don't mean that if you find that you're under secular leadership, if you work for a company you've got a boss who's not a Christian, I'm not saying that you need to quit your job. That, that's not tenable, is it? If you work for a company and your boss is a Christian, great, praise God. But if you find yourself in a situation where you're working for a company and you know that the leadership is corrupt, you know that it's underhanded, you know that there's deceit, you know that there's open rebellion to God and there's, there's celebration of sin in that company and in that leadership structure, that's not where you want to be because God's not going to honor that position. And so I get it that you can't just wake up today and say, okay, well, fine, then I'm going to quit my job today. But I would encourage you to start praying and looking and thinking about other opportunities that might put you in a situation where you're not working for somebody who's in blatant, open, consistent rebellion against the Lord. Second, if you're the leader, have a circle of accountability around you of men who you do not lead. Have a circle of your peers who are going to be there and able to hold you accountable. Men who aren't directly under your leadership. Men who can stand up to you and not worry about their job security. Third, make biblical decisions for those you lead. And this impacts all of us, whether you're a boss or an employee or You've got a leadership circle at home or a leadership circle in the church. Make biblical decisions for those you lead. And we've talked about that in the previous weeks. What that looks like by really praying about it, pushing back from the table, seeking confirmation from others on that. Fourth, pray. We keep coming back to this one, don't we? Pray. Pray for discernment and wisdom to lead with integrity. Pray for accountability, both The the positive accountability of confirming your leadership, your your integrity, and and also pray for accountability for people to come in your life and, and call you on the carpet when things are out of line, like we talked about at the men's conference this past weekend. Pray. And then finally, if you find that you yourself have been an ungodly leader, that you've compromised, that, that when it comes to making decisions, whether it's your company or your home or wherever it may be, those, with those that you lead and you've compromised your integrity, then let me encourage you, number one, to con- confess that. Second, repent. Turn from that. Declare, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this any longer. I'm not going to behave these, this way any longer. Third, seek forgiveness from those that you've wronged. And for correct course. This ungodly leadership, leadership that's openly rebellious to the clear will of God, leadership that refuses to submit to the sovereignty and authority of God, can only lead to ultimate failure. In fact, I was reading in Proverbs this morning, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2. Proverbs 12, 2. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. The CSB translation says, a man who plots, a man who schemes, he condemns. Proverbs 12 verse 3, no one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. Verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. There's no benefit for us in ungodly leadership. We may enjoy temporary success when it comes from an earthly perspective, but in the long run, there's a lot of damage that can come from that. For some, it's going to be on an eternal scale. For some, it will be that you'll stand before Christ on the final day and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. For others, it's going to end up in, in broken marriages, broken families, failed businesses, destroyed testimonies. And all of us, will one day have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And we're going to have to answer for how we led, how we handled ourselves, how we conducted ourselves. And none of us want to be found outside of the prescriptive will of God on that day. Well, things were not going to get any better for Israel. Israel was going weaker and weaker. The house of Ishbosheth, the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker. And we see the the culmination of all this as the text continues. We find these two new characters who come on the scene in Banah and Rakab. They're described initially as captains of raiding bands. These would have been men who served under Abner. And Abner's dead, and, and now they're about to make their move. But we find out something else about them. We find out their tribal lineage, which is that they are from the tribe of what? Benjamin. Who else was from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. And then by extension, Ishbosheth. So these men are from the same tribe as Saul, the same tribe as Ishbosheth. And, and that's not information that's provided just free of charge on accident that doesn't matter. That's information that frames the, the despicable nature of what's about to take place, that piles on to the, the cowardice of what they're about to do but we pick up in verse five. Now the sons of Rahman the Berethite, Rakab and Benah set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth. And as he was taking his noonday rest, and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rakab and Benah, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. There's nothing to say about this event other than it's sheer and utter cowardice. I mean, these men are, are not anywhere near the, 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 the honor and, and dignity of a man like Abner. These are wretched, despicable men. They sneak into the man's house while he's sleeping under the pretense of going in to get wheat And then to make matters worse, if it was all possible, after they stab him and kill him on his bed while he's sleeping, they go up further than that and they cut off his head to take it with them as a trophy. And they decide they're going to take the head to David. Why would they take the head of Ishbosheth to David? Well, David was his rival, yes, but I think it's more than that. I think that these men understood that David was the rightful king. I think that these men understood that David was the next man up. I think that these men understood that it was a foregone conclusion that ultimately David was going to rule over all Israel, so they figured they would get theirs in the process. Second Samuel three: nine and 10. This is Abner speaking to Ishbosheth. He says, "God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him." Second Samuel 3:18. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David. It wasn't any secret in Israel that David was the rightful God-ordained king over all of Israel. Not just over the south, but over the south and the north. And so these men knew that. These men understood that. And so they thought, you know what, if David's going to take this all over eventually, let's go ahead and get ours in the process. So they sneak into this man's house. They stab him in the stomach. They cut off his head, and they decide to take the head with them down to to Hebron, to David, thinking that this is going to be good news. But much like the Amalekite, they had made a a grave miscalculation. See, there's just, there's absolutely nothing good about this whole situation in the north. Again, God does not honor ungodly leadership. We see it unravel. We see it come to a a tragic and horrible and cowardly and shameful and, and quite honestly disgusting end. And now these two men are ready to boast in what they've done. And they come to David in verse 8. They say to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rahman the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity? And we'll get to what he says after that. But these two arrogant Benjamites, these cowardly assassins, go so far as to suggest to David that God was behind their actions. Maybe they had heard about the Amalekite. And maybe in the back of their mind, as they're on their way down there, they're thinking to themselves, well, what if David doesn't receive us well? I know. We'll tell him that that we were executing justice on his behalf at at the hand of of God. We'll, We'll try to convince him that God is behind this. But as David answers, he seizes on that same idea of the Lord's care for him. And he says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David doesn't deny what these men claim, that God redeems him, that God has redeemed him, that God has executed justice for him. He says, God has cared for him, redeemed him, avenged him. In fact, he makes sure that everyone is absolutely clear about that fact before moving on. He wants everybody within earshot to be clear that it wasn't men or the schemes of men that led to his position. That it was God alone to whom all glory was due. It was a consistent mark of David's leadership. In fact, think about in the book of Psalms how many times David turns to the Lord and, and calls out to the Lord as his stronghold, his deliverer, his salvation. David was well aware of God's good hand upon his life. As leaders, we need to be aware of that too and we need to make sure everyone else is as well. We need to acknowledge God's good hand before those we lead. Acknowledge God's good hand before those you lead. As leaders, we need to ensure that those we lead, those we influence, know that any good we experience only comes from the favorable hand of God. It's not us. It's not our wisdom. It's not our move, our decision that we made, our financial investment. Wh- whatever it is, it's, it's a gift from God, and we need to make sure that everybody is well aware of that. And so before David goes any further with these two men, he makes sure that he says, yes, you're right. God has redeemed me out of every adversity. You know, as we think about Compass 2020 and, and looking forward to what God is going to do, what he's already done through blessing our efforts and endeavors here. We don't want to trivialize those things. What we're not talking about here is sweeping the good under the carpet and saying, well, we can't boast in this, so let's just not acknowledge it. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying, yes, let's recognize these things. Let's celebrate these things, but let's make sure that God is exalted, that God is glorified, that God is worshiped as we celebrate these things. And so as we hit these milestones and these markers, like being able to go into escrow on 145 or seeing the the pledges come in and things like that, we're excited about that. But as a leadership, I can tell you that we are mindful that this is not gonna happen based on our own wisdom or our own winsomeness or our own ability to persuade or convince. We need God behind this. And as we see God respond, we wanna make sure that he is front and center with all of it, receiving all of the glory for it. Because it has to be him What do we do with ourselves? We follow Paul's lead in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, as he's praying to the Lord, Lord, remove this thorn from my flesh. He hears back, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Look, where I'm weak and God compliments that, God supplements that by bringing others into my life or by giving me the grace to, to sustain, I'm gonna make sure that he is broadcast, that he is trumpeted, that he receives the glory. How can we practically do this in our own spheres of leadership? Well, number one, take time to publicly acknowledge what God has done for you. Take time to publicly acknowledge what God has done for you. Make that part of your testimony at work. Maybe you're leading a group of unbelievers. You've you've got a group of unbelievers working for you, or you're working alongside them. Celebrate the good things that happen to you by giving God the glory that He's due for them. Building on that, a way to do that is make sure that you're, number two, turning praise from you to Him. When you receive praise, it needs to go back to Him. I'll never forget. One of my pastors growing up, well, actually while I was in seminary, so yeah, growing up, he told me, you know, PGA he said the goal of preaching is not for anybody to come up to us and say, wow, pastor, what a great job you did. It's for people to leave and say, wow, what a great God we serve. It's exactly right. That's absolutely right. Third, acknowledge his blessings and favor when you pray. You know, a lot of times we bring our prayer requests and we bring Our needs to the table. We bring the way that people can lift us up and and support us in prayer. And those are good, and and we should do that. It's an exercise of dependence on God. It's glorifying Him through expressing our, our dependence, our need to Him. But we also need to make sure that we're rejoicing, acknowledging the blessings that He's given us. And we need to do that not just with ourselves, but with others as well. Fourth, we need to see that our everyday speech is, is marked by references to God's goodness and our dependence upon him. We need to see everything that we are utterly dependent on him for. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that in Christ, all things hold together. All things hold together in Christ. And so we think about our bodies, and why do our bodies continue to operate the way they do? And science would say, well, because of biology. And we would say, okay, yes, but what sustains biology? Christ. God. And so as we even take that next breath, that one you just took is taken because Christ is holding all things together. We are so dependent upon him for everything. And so with literally with every breath we have, we should be turning our our thanks back to him and, and praise back to him for his goodness to us. Fifth, remind people of biblical truths that teach us that God is responsible for all of the good that we receive. James 1.17 should be a verse that we have committed to memory. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Or Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Every day I show up here, I'm reminded of this because there was a time I was in the doctor ministry class at the master seminary and a guy named Dr. Mike Fabares was gonna come in and, and teach the class. I knew of him, but I didn't know him, and I didn't know much about Compass Bible Church at all other than the name. And I remember listening to him teach that class, and I remember him talking about his method of of preparing messages and preparing series, and I remember him talking about, you know, coming up with the graphics, and him mentioning that he had a graphics department at his church, and going, what is that like? I'm using clip art, right? Um, And thinking, wow, and then he was talking about the prayer that takes place at this church, and he was talking about how people pray hourly for the sermon, but throughout the the whole sermon, people are praying in in chunks of time throughout the entire sermon, and there's a a team that meets beforehand to pray for the sermon. I just sat there, and I I said, what what would that be like to be in a church like that? At the time, I was serving at a church in Arizona where I was preaching to a a group of 100 people on a weekly basis when attendance was up. There's no reason, guys, that I should be standing here today, If I had taken my resume and submitted it just off the street to Compass Bible Church, not from an arrogant perspective, but honestly, there there would be no reason for them to even consider me with a second breath. The only reason I'm here today is because of God and his sovereign plan for my family's life and using a relationship that I had with Eric Zeller, who's one of our missionaries in Dubai. And Eric was talking with Pastor Lucas and Pastor Lucas was looking for other references for pastors and, and Eric happened to pass my name his way. That's God, guys. That's that's totally God. So every time I walk in this place, every time I'm able to stand up and preach to you, I'm thankful for what God has done. David knew very well who was responsible for the good he had experienced. It was most definitely not these two assassins. David's words, in fact, as he continues, it's interesting, we see this Bit of irony here because at the beginning of chapter four, you find Ishbosheth and his courage has, has left him. And he's dismayed. He's terrified. He's horrified. Meanwhile, these two assassins are in the dark corner, rubbing their hands together, thinking about their next move and how they're going to get theirs in this process and uh, receive power and glory and prestige and everything else for being able to to knock off Ishbosheth. But now that they've done that and they're coming to the man that they thought was going to glorify them, what they experience is they experience the the failure of their own courage and the utter dismay that Ishbosheth felt overtakes them. Verse 9, David answered Rechab and Banah his brother, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, that word's hard for me this morning. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? When David refers to Ishbosheth as a righteous man, he's not saying that he's blameless. He's not saying that he's innocent. He's not saying that he's a a man of God. What he's saying is he didn't deserve the outcome that he received. He's saying you killed a man for, for no cause, basically is what he's telling these two men. How much more? Shall I not now only require his blood, but now I'm going to destroy you from the earth. It's interesting. David appeals to, to his past actions with the Amalekite. In the court of law, there's something when an attorney is doing something that's under objection, but he, says, he thinks back to a time when this has been done previously in another case, he appeals to what? Precedent, right? And he says, look, it was done here, so it should be done here. It would, it would be consistent. But a lot of times, that attorney, most of the time, I would imagine, I I don't know, I'm I'm not a lawyer, but I would imagine he's not appealing to one of his own cases. I would uh, imagine most of the time, he's appealing to somebody else's case. But David appeals to his own consistency, his own integrity. And he looks back at what he did with the Amalekite. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him, which was the reward I gave him for his news. David's appealing to his consistent track record. What would be surprising is if David didn't execute these two. That would be shocking. If David embraced these two, if David gave them positions in his military council, we would be stepping back saying, well, what happened to the man who killed the the Amalekite? What happened to the man who publicly cursed Joab for killing Abner? David, what's going on? Why are you compromising like this? But as it is, David remains consistent. In fact, let's get a, just a, a, a quick look at David's leadership resume so far, 30,000 foot view. First, we find in 1 Samuel chapter 22, David flees from Saul, first time, and he goes out, the arrow is shot, and Jonathan says, go and get it. And so David gets up and he leaves, and then he's joined by a, a group of 400 men, and this 400 men are described as everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, and he became commander over them. Now, if somebody's being sent out to plant a church, my guess is they're not gonna ask for this group of people. But this is the group of people that God brought to David. And David became their leader. First Samuel 24, as we see David's leadership with them, again, as I've referenced the past couple of weeks, he convinces them, hey, I'm not gonna kill Saul. Yes, he's been delivered into our hands, but this is not the time. I'm not gonna raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And he exercises his leadership there and he leads them well there. 1 Samuel 25 David and Nabal. we see a weakness in David where his own flesh and his own pride creeps in but then when Abigail comes and confronts him David is quick to confess and repent from that in the presence of his men and he leads them to say this is not right and he turns them back away from committing that sin 1 Samuel 26 again David has Saul in his crosshairs but again leads his men well and says I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed that's against God's will we're not going to disobey we're not going to transgress 1 Samuel 27, uh, that's, that's not so great. He leads his men behind enemy lines into the Philistine territory because of his fear of, of Saul. We see a little bit of a slip up there. But then David rebounds in 1 Samuel chapter 30. He comes back to Ziklag, and all of his families and, and everybody else is gone, and the city's r- ransacked, and his men are ready to kill him, and he turns to the Lord. And then he rallies his men, and they go back, and they take back all of their families and all of their possessions. 2 Samuel 1, the Amalekite comes with news that Saul and Jonathan are dead and that he killed Saul. And David not only executes that man for what he had professed to do, but then he publicly mourns for Saul and Jonathan and leads all of his men to do the same thing. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 3, we find David react to the news of Abner's death by declaring his own innocence there, his own integrity there, and pronouncing a curse on Joab for doing something that was unjustified, something that was wrong. So as I look at David's leadership so far, minus chapter 27 in 1 Samuel, I think we see a pretty strong leader. Wouldn't you agree? We see a man who's consistent, a man who's concerned for the, the righteousness that, that he has before the Lord, a man who's consistent, concerned for the, the name of God and for obeying God. He's a man of, of war, a man of patience, a man of prayer, a man of passion, a man of decisiveness, a man of consistent conviction. David was the type of leader that, his men never had to sit back and wonder, well, I wonder how David's going to react to this. They knew what was coming. They could count on what was coming. They could trust his consistency. And as men of God, men who lead well, we need to be men who boldly lead with consistent conviction. We need to boldly lead with consistent conviction. Consistency is a refreshing quality in a leader. Unfortunately, it's a rare quality in a lot of our leaders today. In fact, the whole political game is built upon the idea of making promises publicly to one group while you make concessions behind closed doors to another group. Because the thing that they're concerned about when it comes to politics is currying favor with as many people as you possibly can to win the votes. But a biblical leader is not concerned with currying favor of men. A biblical leader is concerned about the favor of God. A biblical leader is concerned about remaining consistently convicted that the, the biblical precepts are those by which he should lead, no matter what the circumstances and opposition may appear. And so, what does this consistent leadership look like practically for us? Well, number one, we can remind ourselves daily of who we serve. Remind ourselves daily of who we serve, whether you're the top dog in your company or whether you are the lowest on the totem pole or whether your only sphere of leadership is your family or here at the church, we need to be reminding ourselves that we are serving under the sovereignty of another, serving under the sovereignty of the creator of, of God who has put in place the standards by which we should be leading. And so the convictions we need to have are, have already been delivered to us. In the pages of the word of God, which lead us to number two, resolve to lead under authority. What authority? God's authority. We need to remember that we are servants of him, that we serve under his authority, his accountability. Third, we need to remember that our circumstances shouldn't change our convictions, I didn't say they can't because oftentimes, unfortunately, they do. We have a conviction that we're willing to hold, but then as soon as, as things change, circumstances change, we waver on that conviction. Which is a good reminder for us. We need to look at what our convictions are and make sure that we can anchor them to the truth of God's words so that when times do get tough or when circumstances change, we have the immutable word of God. We have an immutable God that we can point back to and say, I'm not going to alter course. I'm not going to change course because this is based on a God who is changeless. Fourth, remember your word has weight with the lost. Your word has weight with the lost. And so as you lead and you're tempted to change course, you're tempted to back out of a promise you made. You're tempted to to lead in a way that would make things easier. Remember that if that involves compromise, there are lost around you who are gonna have a negative view of your savior as a result of it. And finally, just to summarize these things, I just wrote down integrity above everything. Integrity above everything. This is the type of leadership that it pays off in the end with faithful followers. No one wants to follow a capricious leader, a leader they can't count on, a leader they can't know when when they get to work in the morning, this is what he's going to expect of me. This is what he's going to do. This is the direction we're headed. Same thing with your family. Your wives, gentlemen, want a leader who is consistently convicted to what is right, what is true, and what is biblical. That's the type of man that she wants to follow. This is the type of leader that we find in David. His men knew where he stood, what they should expect from him at every turn. And so we find, as our text wraps this morning in verse 12, David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and they cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them besides the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. again, David's consistent. He goes above and beyond what he did to the Amalekite by chopping off their hands and feet and publicly displaying their bodies because what they had done deserved a a shameful display. It deserved full condemnation. And he takes the head of Ishbosheth and he honors that head by placing it in the tomb where Abner's body was as well at Hebron there. And so, yes, there are godly leaders who are worthy of our emulation, worthy of our admiration. And yes, there are most certainly ungodly leaders, men whom we should learn what not to do from what they did. And in this passage, we saw both. We saw the outcome of ungodly leadership with Ishbosheth, and we saw the steady consistency of godly leadership with David. So, how have you been leading? Whose lead have you been following? When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, how will you answer for the leadership that you've brought to the table in life? We need to strive for godly leadership. We need to be men who can look at those who follow us and say to them what Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful that these examples exist, thankful for Men like David, who we can learn for. And Lord, we're even thankful for men like Ishbosheth and these two shameful assassins so that we can see them and be warned not to follow in their steps. God, help us to be men of integrity, men who lead well, men who lead consistently. God, men who are concerned more with your esteem than the, the esteem of the world around us, men who are concerned more with the eternal riches that await us in heaven than any riches that we might gain here on earth through underhanded means or compromise. God, help us to be faithful men who lead our families well, first and foremost. Let us lead our wives well, our children well. God, we thank you for this time together this morning. Pray for just a a wonderful time during our small groups. Good discussion, good time praying together as brothers in Christ, and we give you all the glory for this in Christ's name. Amen.